Welcome to Passy Mears CAM Podcast, conversations on error digestive management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, Steve Cooper, a patient with a laryngectomy, having a conversation on what is a laryngectomy. This is the first part of a series on laryngectomy from the patient's perspective. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. Today, we are lucky to have with us Steve Cooper. Steve is, I'm going to say first, the owner of a wholesale food brokerage business, but that's not why he's with us today. Uh, Steve had a total laryngectomy in February of 2019 and went to or was able to get the TEP or the tracheoesophageal voice prosthesis a few months later, September of that same year. And he's here today to talk with us about laryngectomy patients, what it is, what it means, what's in that stoma, and considerations for speech language pathologists and how we can help patients who've had laryngectomies. But before we get into that, Steve, I'm going to share that you have become such a strong advocate in this patient population and helping and that you are a past board member of the International Association of Laryngectomies. You've been a strong advocate in the laryngectomy community by serving on the governor's advisory board for the telecommunication relay. You've been a mentor for cancer support groups um, and working with patients even within the hospital itself. And I know that you work now with uh, Larry's Speakeasy group and are really involved uh, with that. But what would you like to share about yourself that everyone should know before we get chatting? First, I'd like to thank you for um, inviting me to share my experience as a laryngectomy patient and um, maybe provide some awareness and education to your listeners. The differences, the similarities, but mostly the differences between a laryngectomy patient and a tracheostomy patient. We are a very, very small population. And the education that's out there is is quite limited, which really speaks to the number of laryngectomies. I'm a uh, lifelong resident of the state of Maryland. I've been happily married for over 44 years. I have three adult children and two grand doggies. I always, I like to educate. Now, you know, first thing they got to understand is don't resuscitate by nose or mouth. It's, it's not going to put put the oxygen on my ear. It's going to be just as effective. So, you know, I'm at a doctor's, I'm at a clinic, I'm at CVS getting a flu shot. I educate. And the first thing I say is, are you aware of the difference between a trach patient and a laryngectomy? And 90% of the time, the response is, and sort of like dismissive, like condescending. I've, Oh, I said it. No, I say, have you ever worked with a laryngectomy patient? That's my question. And it's a trick question. And 90% of the time says, I've worked with trach patients my entire career. You don't have to tell me about trach patients. I'm not a trach patient. That tells me they have no clue about my anatomy. You would be shocked how many times this has come up. I've gotten that response. When I get that response, I say, okay, they don't know laryngectomies. You know, it's interesting because 
that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this because we actually have run into that problem as we're teaching about trachs and people will call us and they'll have a laryngectomy patient and they'll want to use our valve. And we're like, you can't use the valve with a laryngectomy patient. It's for tracheostomy patients. So it does come up some in our, in our, in our side of things, but, um, but we're going to, we're definitely going to have to clarify that for people. Cause I think, I mean, that is a huge hole. Sorry, I had to clear mucus. And as I took off my HME, you said that is a huge hole. <laughs> That's so funny. I didn't even catch this. It's only 10 millimeters. It's not that big. <laughs> We've been talking about patients with laryngectomies, and you mentioned earlier what's important to know about them. Can you share a little what the differences are between patients with tracheostomies and patients with laryngectomies? Like, what do people need to know? Um, first, I'd like to address the this, this similarities. Okay. And the key, the key similarity between a trach patient and a laryngectomy patient is we both have stomas. But the word stoma simply means an opening in the body. Your mouth is a stoma, your nose is a stoma, ears are stoma, etc. Now, the differences between a laryngectomy patient and a trach patient is tracheostomies tend to be more often tend to be temporary. A laryngectomy patient is a radical change in their anatomy. The stoma is permanent. It's non-reversible. Um, trach patients likely can still voice with their vocal folds. Their vocal folds are intact using the Passimir valve. The Passimir speaking valve will help them achieve voice. Total laryngectomy does not have vocal folds. So they must communicate by other means, whether it's voice prosthesis, electrolarynx, esophageal uh, speech, which is where you inject air into your esophagus through your mouth. Again, it's not coming from my lungs. They're not connected. Where you inject or swallow air. And then as you bring it back up, um, the B segment of your esophagus vibrates and you form the words. Drake patients can potentially still aspirate. A laryngectomy patient without a fistula, without a tear in the party wall, which happens sometimes uh, right after surgery. But generally, a trach patient can still aspirate. A laryngectomy patient without a voice prosthesis cannot aspirate. Our esophagus and our trachea have no connection whatsoever. A trach patient can still exchange air from the mouth of the nose. A total laryngectomy can only exchange air through the stoma and the neck. There's no other way to get air in or out of the lungs. And that's extremely important when it comes to emergency rescue. You know, any MT said it best. Everybody's got a silicon bracelet, live strong breast cancer, you name it, whatever the cause is. 
He said, unless it's the medic alert insignia, we don't look at them. And he said, frankly, in the heat of the moment, we're trying to save your life. We're not looking to see what jewelry you're wearing. So even if you have a medic alert bracelet, we may not see it. Please forgive us. We're trying to save your life. And the laryngectomy, that's a big problem. Because if they bag us, there's only one place, and that's the stoma. And obviously, a drink patient still has a larynx, typically, and a laryngectomy patient has no larynx. So those are the key differences among many others. Yep. And I want to reinforce the the next to last one that you said that for a laryngectomy, the only access is the stoma. So in an emergency, you're, I mean, you're, cause you're talking about a life-saving measurement to know that difference. That's not just, you know, something to be aware of. It's not a trivial point. I mean, that, that makes a life-saving difference that a laryngectomy patient would have to have emergency services provide oxygen or airflow or anything at the stoma. The mouth and nose is going to go nowhere that's going to be helpful as you said i think you said at one point you said you could put it on my ear it wouldn't it wouldn't do you know wouldn't do anymore um so that's a definitely a critical piece for people to be aware of but yeah thank you and following up what you said how critical it is to make sure that the um resuscitation is by stoma only there have been many incidents where a laryngectomy patient has needed oxygen the medical personnel has applied it to their nose or mouth. And just in the last couple of years alone, and just in the last couple of years alone, there's been two fatalities with laryngectomy patients. And I don't want to say it was because the oxygen was not administered to the stoma, but that was one of the contributing factors. Yeah. I mean, it's, as we said, it's critical to be aware of that difference and that important, that's really, I mean, it's life-saving for a patient, for a laryngectomy patient. Do you hear the gurgling? Can you hear it? A little bit. That's when mucus flows over my valve when I get excited. I call this the uncomfortable laryngectomy swallow. I got to clear the mucus, settle down, relax. The muscles, when we get tense, the muscles tighten up in our um, B segment of our esophagus and it eliminates, it changes our speech. Oh, in addition to the gargling, uh, laryngectomies tend to uh, swallow a lot of air. So then I've got that belching and the, the stomach rumbling. So Please um, excuse me when I um, have to pause and start belching. Laryngectomies are actually very uh, quite rare in the United States. Um, there's thought to be approximately 35,000 laryngectomies in the U.S. Um, there's an estimated 3,500 uh, total laryngectomy surgeries done in the United States each year. And as one um, medical professional told me, they probably do more knee replacements on a Monday morning in the United States 
than they do laryngectomies for the entire year. Oh, wow. That's, that's a nice analogy to show the, the rarity. So you can feel it when the mucus starts to build up. You can feel sort that. Of, yeah, it's like a, or is it more? It's yeah, yeah. It's well when you have the post nasal drip, it's similar. You can feel that mucus going down the back of your throat. Um, but it actually we have it both in the in the esophagus and in the trachea. But again, they're not connected, so we have double. Oh boy, this is you guys are gonna get a laugh out of this. Okay, uh, okay, let me let me um. <laughs> a total laryngectomy, the procedure, is an incredibly radical surgery. In short, in my case, they made an ascent. They they did a bilateral neck dissection, which means they literally cut me from ear to ear. They opened the throat, they removed the larynx, they removed the, sometimes the thyroid cartilage, vocal fold, epiglottis. In some cases, the esophagus itself needs to be reconstructed. They separate the esophagus, they surgically separate the esophagus from the trachea. And this is where it's extremely radical. And it changes everything you've ever been taught in medical school. Um, they surgically separate the trachea from the esophagus. They reroute the trachea out the neck. They may they cut a hole in the in the neck where the Adam's apple was, or just below. They reroute the trachea and stitch it to that area. That is now my stoma. That is the only pathway to my lungs. Then they close the esophagus. So there is no connection between my esophagus and my trachea, absent the voice, if I didn't have a voice prosthesis. So for that reason, one of the few benefits of being a laryngectomy is we cannot aspirate. Um, another side benefit, is we no longer can snore. Now, I would not recommend a laryngectomy procedure for snoring. Now, the voice prosthesis. Um, there's several options. It can be if the patient's a candidate, depending on whether they've had radiation, the extent of the surgery, whether they need um, esophageal reconstruction, where they use a muscle from an arm, leg, chest, and use that to reconstruct the esophagus. Uh, it might compromise. They might not be a candidate for a voice prosthesis. Some medical practices don't do voice prosthesis at the time of surgery. Um, however, if a patient does receive a voice prosthesis, it's a very simple procedure. It's literally it's done under anesthesia most of the time, um, under general general anesthesia most of the time in a hospital setting. They make a small puncture, roughly um, eight millimeters in the party wall 
between the trachea and the esophagus, and they insert the silicon voice prosthesis. When we have a DEB change, uh, these uh, speech pathologists, the clinician removes the DEB. It's painless, no anesthesia. It's done in office. It's literally painless. It's uncomfortable, but there's zero pain. But with a pair of forceps, they uh, clamp down on the TP and literally pull it out. But then they immediately have to put a dilator back in the puncture uh, to keep it from closing. Even just for the 15 minutes, they're changing out the TP. So if, um, if you have a patient whose TP has become dislodged, it's critical that you get a, um, if nothing else, just get a catheter in there. Get any sterile soft object into that puncture to keep it from closing and then let the um, the surgeons or the, the ante follow up. How often do you have to have it changed? The average life of a voice prosthesis is roughly two and a half months. However, Every single patient is different. Um, I can go three weeks. Uh, currently using, I'm using an active valve, um, which is made by Atos Medical. And it's the only um, TP like this. There's a, there are tiny magnets in it, which help keep the valve closed. Uh, the active valve's um, estimated life is about one year. Oh, wow. But as I said, the um, the typical, the average life is two and a half months. But you can have patients that have a, uh, you replace the, the voice prosthesis. And in a week or two, it's leaking. Um, you, you know, you just, you can't figure out why you have to change it. The valve's not sealing is what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, you can have patients. I've heard of patients going for years on one voice prosthesis. It was so long, the voice prosthesis was literally disintegrating. Oh, wow. That's unheard of. The um, sort of not accepted, the, um, the feedback I've heard from the medical professionals is after a year, even if it's not leaking, if, if you should be lucky to get a year out of a voice prosthesis, which is, you know, maybe less than 25% of the population. After a year, it should be replaced anyway. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I knew you went in office and had them replaced, um, but can you do it yourself? Yes, there are patient changeable uh, voice prosthesis. They're called non-indwelling. They're much cheaper. Um, they, um, they're recommended to be changed roughly every 30 days. Um, some patients will remove, will uh, replace their uh, non-indwelling or also they use the, the, the initials NID. Um, they'll take their NID voice prosthesis, they'll replace it and they'll clean the old one, which, you know, I don't know if that's recommended. Uh, my speech my pathologist actually tried to um, show me how to use a patient changeable voice prosthesis. And I have the dexterity, I have the eyesight, I have the ability to do it. 
I was very uncomfortable doing it. And I said to her, look, I know you're trying to help me make it so I don't have to come in as often. But I'm just going to come see you every three months and ask you to do it. Uh, some patients, if they're in a remote area, the nearest uh, trained speech pathologist is three, four hours away, then they're an excellent candidate for a NID voice prosthesis. Uh, again, they rough, they they cost roughly a hundred dollars versus two hundred and fifty to a thousand dollars for the um, voice prosthesis that the SLP must insert. That is a big difference, yeah, in price. You said something that that made me question. You were, you know, you mentioned earlier the mucus, and you have to clear that sometimes when you're speaking. Do you have an issue with reflux or does reflux contribute to that at all? Yes. Um, and again, I'm not a doctor, so I have to be careful on this, but it's my understanding all laryngectomies have reflux issues to some extent in that during the surgery, um, the swallow sphincter is removed, muscles that I'll bring the food down is removed. So food constantly wants, then acid constantly wants to come back up. Um, every laryngectomy learns very early on. Do not eat a meal or do not drink a, a tall beverage and bend over and tie your shoes. It will be coming up. Um, I don't know the percentage, but I will just say the majority of laryngectomies by nature of the surgery suffer from GERD, from um, acid reflux. It can be controlled by medication. Uh, well, the first choice, which is for me is the hardest, is diet. You know, avoiding the foods, the uh, acidic foods, the fried foods, not eating three hours before you lay down because again, the food and the, uh, the stomach acids naturally are trying to, to escape. Medication, in some cases, is actually surgery that can be performed uh, for any, any patient with acid reflux, but specifically for the laryngectomy. But yes, it's a problem, and it actually impacts our voice prosthesis. The acid is the biggest cause of failure. Well, there's two causes of failure in a voice prosthesis. Uh, AVM, the acids from our stomach, reflux, and then um, just biofilm, uh, yeast, other biofilm forms on the, on the backside of the prosthesis. It forms on the uh, little valve that closes the door. And once that happened, the valve won't seal and then we start to aspirate. And aspiration is a whole nother topic. We could get on dysphagia and and that being an issue for, like you said, if your prosthesis isn't working properly. The, uh, have you had any trouble personally with it? Actually, that's one of the um, major differences between a laryngectomy and just the typical drake patient. Um, if, a, if a laryngectomy does not have a voice prosthesis, 
and they do not have a fistula. They do not have a tear in the party wall between the trachea and the esophagus. It's impossible for a laryngectomy to aspirate. Well, you were saying that you can't aspirate and just to clarify, unless you have a voice prosthesis, right? <laughs> now, since I have that puncture, since I now have that opening between my trachea and my esophagus, there are, there are situations where I can aspirate. Uh, typically, the voice prosthesis will leak and most commonly it's through the center inside the voice prosthesis is a tiny little silicon flap. And when I speak, I force air from my lungs, from my, from my lungs and my trachea through the voice prosthesis. The little silicon flap opens. The air goes into my esophagus. The B segment of my esophagus vibrates. Using my mouth, my oral cavity, I form the words just like anyone else does. The voice prosthesis, if that flap does not stay closed for several reasons, most of usually it's food particles, biofilm, uh, yeast buildup. The flap won't stay closed. That's a path for aspiration. Now, another situation where a laryngectomy with a voice prosthesis can aspirate is around the outside of the voice prosthesis. It's not sealing to the to the party wall properly. So you get leakage around the voice prosthesis. There are specialty voice prostheses that can be used with larger flanges on the anterior and posterior side. And there's also literally like a washer that they use to help prevent leaks from the outside of the voice prosthesis. So while we're on that and you're mentioning the, mentioning the voice prosthesis, what are your other, what would have been your other options for voicing? That's a great question. Initially laryngectomies immediately following surgery have only one method of communication and that's written. Whether it be as simple as on a whiteboard or a boogie board, electronic board, where you write and it erases a uh, pad and paper on a uh, text-to-speech app. Post-surgery, because of the, the uh, sutures, the stitches, the swelling, the inflammation, the doctors do not want us to use any devices or do not want us to attempt speech. So initially, even if you have a voice prosthesis, the laryngectomy's first form of communication is strictly written. If we have a voice prosthesis after a couple of weeks working with the speech pathologist, and by the way, this, as speech pathologist, you will be responsible for managing the patient's voice prosthesis. So working with a speech pathologist, they will help the patient learn to regain speech using a voice prosthesis. Another, and possibly the most common, is an electrolarynx. 
It's a sound generating device. Inside the device is a sound head and it basically just vibrates. And you place the electrolarynx firmly under your chin, on your cheek, or there's an oral adapter. It's like a straw that goes in your mouth for patients with severe fibrosis or swelling uh, post-surgery where they can't use the electrolarynx under their chin. Uh, you use the oral adapter or oral straw that they hold directly into their mouth. When you press the button on the electrolarynx, it vibrates rapidly. The vibration, whether it's placing it under your chin or the straw into your mouth, uh, it forms vibration and then using your oral cavity, you form the words. I can demonstrate uh, the electrolarynx use under the chin. That'd be great, thank you. Trying to get the better voice, the better sound. Mm -hmm. Hello, hello, how are you? It's an honor, it's an honor to be on this podcast. There's a de definitely a big difference in how your voice sounds between the two. Well, I can use my curly voice. <laughs> they have come along. Or I can use my manly voice. Oh, I like that. <laughs> well, I knew they'd come a ways back when I first worked with electrolarynx as you didn't have that pitch change. You couldn't do quite as much with them. Yes, uh, this is the um, true tone emote. This is um, one of the better electrolarynx on the market. And it, um, it actually gives you intonation. But it takes, you know, and even if a patient is using electrolarynx, um, there's a learning curve. Mm -hmm. uh, as speech biologist, I would encourage you to get a loaner electrolarynx. I'm with an organization called Larry Speakeasy. And among other things, we provide free laryngectomy supplies to patients, speech biologists, to give to their patients other medical professionals. We also have an electrolarynx loaner program and we're happy to loan to any speech pathologist that's interested uh, to loan them an electrolarynx. So they can either learn themselves, they can experiment with it, or they can help train their patients in electrolarynx use. Yeah, and that's a great opportunity because one of the things I did work and use electrolarynxes in the hospital. And I actually use them some with patients who didn't even have a laryngectomy if they had some other reason that they weren't able to voice or had vocal fold involvement and we could temporarily use it. But knowing the proper placement is such a huge piece of that. So if people got the loaner from you, they could kind of practice that and know the better placements and positionings for it. The term we use is that the patient needs to find their sweet spot. Mm 
Oh, there you go. It's, it's the spot under their chin. It's the spot on their cheek. Um, if there's fibrosis, you're looking for a softer spot that allow the vibrations to penetrate into the oral cavity. Uh, you can't put it on the mantle, on your um, on your jawbone. You can't put it directly on bone. That won't work. So you need to find what they call the sweet spot. And it's easy to do. I can I can provide resources that will train that will help any speech pathologist free of charge online in electrolarynx shoes. With Larry Speakeasy and I run our electrolarynx loaner program. I've actually um, lent electrolarynxes to people other than laryngectomies. We had a patient with Parkinson's uh, who was unable to speak. We had a patient with polyps on their vocal cords. They still had vocal folds, but they had polyps. Um, we had a patient with aphonia, and they had very weak breath, and they could not produce sound. And that was actually a success story. We lent the electrolarynx to the speech pathologist so she could see if she could get that patient to talk again. And it was successful. They ended up ordering their own electrolarynx, returned the loaner to us. But we gave the um, the gift of speech to a patient that was unable to speak. Well, and that's the best thing about the loaner program is the more we can restore actual verbal communication, allow people to speak, give them their um, give them access to what they are we're most used to using. I mean, I, at least from a professional standpoint, I feel like that is a key. Thank you, Steve. It's been great chatting with you today. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.